Well, I don't know if, if this is your experience or not, but it seems sometimes like the end of the world might be right around the corner. Um, you know, I know we're not supposed to take our cues from Hollywood, but you know, there's that movie that came out a few years back called 2012, uh, where it predicted that the world would end in 2012. Well, we're only a couple months away from that. Uh, and, and I know, you know that we shouldn't be basing our predictions of when the world will end based on what Hollywood puts out, but when you look around and you see the global financial crisis sweeping the world, um, you, you see uh, disasters, earthquakes, famines, um, all over the place. Um, when you see all the unrest that's happening, the wars around the world, the unrest in the Middle East, uh, when you consider the fact that the Cubs just got a management team that might lead them to win the World Series, uh, you have to wonder, uh, is the end of the world close? Like, wh what, what's the truth about the end of the world? And does the Bible have anything to say about that? Uh, well, it does, in fact, have a lot to say about it. And that's the passage we're going to be looking at today, one of these great passages of prophecy about the end of the world. We're going to be in Mark 13 today. We're working our way through Mark, and if you've got the Red Pew Bibles in front of you, that would be page 684 by now, but Mark 13 is where we're at. Uh, and while you're turning there, before we get into it, I want to tell you a little story, a true story from the Bible, to help us get our minds in the right place in terms of understanding how biblical prophecy works. Okay. Uh, this story happens in Isaiah chapter 7. It's the story of King Ahaz. Uh, he was a king of Judah in 735 B.C. And in 735 B.C., King Ahaz was very afraid because there were two kingdoms that were coming to get him. There was the northern kingdom of Israel that was going to attack, and with them the kingdom of Syria. King Ahaz was very afraid, so God sent Isaiah to Ahaz with a sign that things were going to be okay. And what Isaiah told him, this sign from God, was that a woman, a young woman, would conceive and give birth to a child, and before that child was an adult, even before that child was a young adult, the two nations that were coming to attack Ahaz would be destroyed. And that's exactly what happened. The prophecy came in 735 B.C., Two years later, in 733 B.C., or sorry, three, two years later, in 732 B.C., Syria, one of those nations, was destroyed by Assyria. Then ten years after that, in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by Assyria. And so Isaiah had given this prophecy, said this woman's going to give birth to a child before that child's an adult. These kingdoms will be destroyed, and in 12 years they were destroyed, prophecy fulfilled. Okay, but here's the deal. You know this prophecy. 700 years later, another young girl got pregnant. She was a virgin. Her name was Mary. And in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew says, This happened. Let me find it for you. He says, This happened to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Then he quotes Isaiah 7. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So which was it? Which was the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah 7? Did it, was it fulfilled when 12 years after Isaiah made this prophecy, these nations were destroyed and the sign was fulfilled, as he said? Or was it fulfilled 700 years later when Jesus was born of a virgin? 
Well, the answer is both. And this is what I want you to see as we gear up for Mark 13 today. This is how biblical prophecy works sometimes. Sometimes there are multiple fulfillments to a prophecy. You have an original historical fulfillment that happens within a specified time frame, and then you've got a later complete fulfillment that happens somewhere down the line. Twelve years later, prophecy fulfilled. Seven hundred years later, prophecy ultimately fulfilled. Now, I share this with you because that's what we're going to see in Mark 13 today. Jesus is speaking in the year A.D. 33, and he's talking to his disciples, and he's foretelling an event that will happen in the near future. He's talking to them about the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed. And he tells them, there's a sign, and these signs will happen in your lifetime. And in 40 years, after he makes this prophecy, it happens. The temple in Jerusalem is destroyed. Uh, The Jews revolt. Rome encircles Jerusalem. They attack the city. They destroy the temple. And it's a horrific, horrific time. It happened. Prophecy fulfilled. But at the same time, as we'll see as we look at Mark 13, there's things in this prophecy that make you think he's not just talking about things that only happened in the year 70. There's things that Jesus is weaving in here to talk about what's going to happen at the end of the world. And so we've got to keep those lenses on as we look at our passage today. There's multiple fulfillments. That's how biblical prophecy can work. So what I'm going to do today and try to do to help us and strap on your seatbelts Uh, But I'm going to try to go through all of Mark 13. We're going to read it once through, and then we're just going to march through it. And as best as I can, I'm going to try to point out to you where these things have been fulfilled already and what we are still yet waiting for and what the application for that is in our life today because it does matter to us. You ready for this? All right, here we go. Let me get back to Mark 13. Mark 13, I'm just going to read it through all the way. Verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved." But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. 
But alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as not been seen from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I've told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds of the he- four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake, therefore stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. You'll notice in your outline today, I'm not even bothering with the fill in the blank thing, because I want you to be able to follow really carefully and use your attention to to write down things that you you need to keep track of. So you've got the outline there. Don't worry about filling in the blanks. We're going to walk through it today together. We begin in chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, with the introduction to the whole prophecy. It starts with them in the temple. They're leaving the temple, and the disciples make a comment. Look how impressive this building is, and it's a very, very impressive building. Jesus responds to that by making a prediction. In verse 2, he says, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another. Jesus is clearly predicting that this temple that they are looking at will be destroyed. The disciples are rightly amazed and a little confused by this prediction, and so they ask him a question. They leave the temple, they go to the Mount of Olives, they sit down there, and Peter, James, John, and Andrew ask Jesus a question. In verse 4, they say, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign that these things are to be accomplished. So they're asking Jesus. He's just said, the temple's going to be destroyed. They ask him, when? When is the temple going to be destroyed? And what is the sign, that is, what sort of thing is going to happen that we can know that this is going to happen? That's the question that frames this whole prophecy. So clearly, the answer Jesus gives has to have something to do with the temple. As we read through, we see that it does, but it's got far more than just to talk about the temple. Like much biblical prophecy, he weaves in current uh, near-term events with things that are going to happen far off. The bulk of the prophecy then, starting in verse 5, is his instruction. 
And I've broken it up into five instructions, all beginning with the phrase, watch out. Now, that's not me just trying to be cute. I'm really not a big fan of alliteration. Uh, but this comes out of the passage, out of key words that are used in this passage, time and time again, where Jesus says these things like, watch out, be on your guard, see, look, stay awake. This is the theme of his prophecy. He wants us to watch for things. And so based on these key words, I've broken down the passage into five sections where Jesus tells us what to watch out for as we're looking towards the end of the world. First, in verses 5 through 8, Jesus says, watch out for alarmists. Watch out for alarmists. In this section, these verses 5 through 8, Jesus is predicting that there will be turmoil. He flat out says it. There will be turmoil. He says there will be earthquakes. There will be famines. There will be nations that rise up against nations and kingdom fighting kingdoms. You'll hear about wars. You'll hear rumors of wars. These things are going to happen. But he says in verse 5, see or watch out that no one leads you astray. He says, when you hear about these things, in verse 6, uh, they will lead many astray. Verse 7, when you hear of wars, do not be alarmed. Okay? You're going to get people coming, he's, Jesus is saying. You're going to get people coming when these wars happen, when these famines happen, earthquakes. People are going to be coming, these alarmists, saying the end is here. Jesus says, don't be led astray by them. The end is not yet here. Now, when did this happen? I've got two fulfillments for this. The first fulfillment happened in the turmoil leading up to the year 70. 70 is the year when Rome surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. There's the first fulfillment of this in that turmoil there. You had people uh, coming and talking about wars. You had wars going on. There were earthquakes. There were famines. There's been these things from the beginning of time. And these things all happened in that time period leading up to 70. Now, second fulfillment, these things are also still happening now. I don't think I have to persuade you that there's wars and earthquakes and famines going on. But, but the main application from this, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus says, this is not the sign that the end is near. You got that? Jesus says, this is not the sign. He says, when you hear of these things in verse 7, do not be alarmed. So often we go the other direction. We hear about the earthquakes, we hear about the famines and the wars, and we get concerned. We think, oh, this must be the sign that the end is here. But Jesus is saying quite explicitly, one of the clearest things in this prophecy, when you hear about these things, don't be alarmed. We should be the calmest people on the face of the earth when we hear news of wars and earthquakes and famines because we know this does not mean that the world is going to end soon. We know that God is in control and that these things are in his hands. So watch out for alarmists. Jesus continues. The second instruction, he says, watch out for yourselves. In verse 9, he says, be on your guard, in my translation at least. It's really the same exact Greek word in verse 9 as it is in verse 5. The same word where he said, see that no one leads you astray or watch out. Now he says, see to yourselves, watch out for yourselves. And what does he warn us to watch out for, for ourselves in this passage? Well, there's going to be persecution. In verse 9, he says to disciples, they will hand you over to councils. You'll be beaten. You'll stand before governors and kings. 
Verse 12, this horrific picture of brother delivering brother over to death, parents and children handing each other over. Verse 13, you will be hated for my name's sake. Jesus is predicting persecution, and he's saying, watch out for yourselves. Be prepared for this. Now, when did this happen? Well, there was a first fulfillment. There was intense persecution that happened leading up to 70 A.D. And if you want to find out more about this, you can read the book of Acts. It's really interesting that the description that Jesus gives here in verses 9 through 13, for those of you who were in our study not too long ago in the book of Acts, you can see and read through this, and you think, wow, that's the book of Acts right there. That's what happened in Acts that recorded the 30 years from A.D. 33 to the mid-60s. The, the, the progress of the church, as it spread, there was intense persecution. People stood before governors and kings. The gospel was proclaimed, in a sense, to all nations in the known world. That's the message of Acts 1.8. The gospel goes from Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So in some way, this was fulfilled. This prophecy happened in the events leading up to AD 70. But at the same time, it's still happening. Okay? Persecution didn't stop when the temple was destroyed in year 70. There's still a second fulfillment that there will be persecution leading up to the return of Christ. We don't get this in our heads much when we live in America, but by and large, the normal experience of being a Christian in the world is that you get persecuted. This is normal. This description of what Jesus gives, not a sign, so to speak, of the end of the world, as much as it is just a sign of what is normal if you're a Christian living in the world. You will be persecuted. But Jesus tells the disciples, and he tells us, don't be concerned when you're persecuted. Be encouraged. That, that's how the gospel is spread. In verse 9 and 10, he says, you're going to be standing before governors and kings, and you get to bear witness to the gospel. He says, don't be anxious. In verse 11, they're going to bring you to trial. Don't worry about what you're going to say, because the Holy Spirit is speaking through you. Verse 12, he says, don't be surprised when you're persecuted. The shocking thing of brother handing brother over, father and child betraying each other. Don't be surprised when that happens. But instead, endure, persevere. Verse 13, the one who endures to the end will be saved. Don't let go of your faith just because life gets hard. Don't abandon Jesus just because persecution happens. He's warning you. It's the normal experience of the Christian life. Endure in your faith to the end. Be a genuine follower of Jesus, and you will be saved. The third instruction from Jesus finally gets to the heart of their question. They've been asking him, what is, when's it going to happen? What's the sign? And he's taken two instructions to tell them what's not the sign, saying it's, it's not when you hear about wars and famines and all that sort of stuff. That's just birth pains. It's not when you get persecuted. That's going to happen all the time. But now he gives them a sign and he says, watch out for the abomination of desolation, which is just really fun to say. The abomination of desolation. This is in verses 14 through 20. He says to them, when you see, there's that word again, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, what is the abomination of desolation? Well, that's the $1,000 question, isn't it? Biblically speaking, this phrase comes from Daniel. It comes from Daniel. It's used at least three places in Daniel. Daniel 9:27, Daniel 11:31, and Daniel 12:11. And in Daniel, it's used in a prophecy 
to talk about something or someone who is so horrible, so abominable, so despicable, that when they do something in the temple, it will end the sacrifices, and the sacrifices in the temple, or as the temple will become empty or desolate. So that's where it comes from. You've got an abomination, something that's horrible or abominable, in the temple that then leads to the temple being empty or desolate, an abomination of desolation. Now, historically, this one's interesting because this one's got at least three fulfillments. The first one we know historically happened back in 168 B.C. The first fulfillment, it was a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a ruler, a foreign ruler, who conquered Jerusalem and came in, and he went into the temple, and in 168 B.C., he set up an altar to Zeus on top of the real altar. And he sacrificed a pig on that altar, which is an unclean animal. And this was an abomination that led to the end of sacrifices for a time in the temple. And in that time, people referred to what happened there as the abomination of desolation. People said, this is that. Now, Jesus speaking over 100 years later says there's going to be another one. But he uses these words so that people will recognize it's going to be like what happened before. It's going to be like that. He says there will be an abomination of desolation. And that's going to be the sign of what happens before the temple gets destroyed. Now, as we look at events that happen in Jerusalem and in the temple in the years leading up to the year 70, there's about seven or so different suggestions that people have made as to what this abomination of desolation was. Uh, I can show you the list sometime if you want it. Here's my answer to what I think the best answer is. The best answer is probably when the zealots were in the temple in the year 67 and 68. Here's what happened. These zealots are the people who hated Rome. They rebelled against Rome. They seized control of the temple. They appointed a high priest who was not the real high priest. That is, he wasn't from the high priestly family. He was a false high priest. And they killed a bunch of people in the temple. And they just kind of wandered around in the holy places. Not a lot of concern or respect for the temple as it was. And this could qualify as the abomination of desolation. It was a horrible thing that happened in the temple that led to the sacrifices not taking place. Soon after this happened, the Romans responded to the rebellion by encircling the city, and then the next year, in the year 70, they attacked and destroyed the temple. So the chronology fits. Now this is, I think, the second fulfillment of this prophecy. There was an abomination of desolation. There was something that happened in the temple that then led to the temple being destroyed. And you see, described in these following verses after 14, a description of what people who are in Judea and in Jerusalem should do when they see the sign. Jesus says, when you see somebody doing something horrible in the temple, know the end is near. The temple is going to get destroyed. So if you're in Judea, get out now. Don't take the time to get down and get your cloak. Don't take the time to go back for anything. If you're pregnant and nursing, I'm sorry. If it's winter, I'm sorry, because it's going to be hard for you to get out in time. So pray it's not in that time. But when you see the sign, get out because destruction is coming. And it did. Now, a number of Christians saw the sign. They left in time, and they escaped the destruction. But for whoever dilly-dallied and didn't get out right in time, by the time Rome encircled the city, you were not getting out. And you were going to get destroyed. Now, that was the second fulfillment. But there's signs here, even in the way Jesus describes what's happening, that that's not the ultimate fulfillment. If you look in verse 19, 
you see that Jesus describes this horrible event, this tribulation, this, uh, you know, in the second fulfillment, the attack of Rome on the city, but he describes it in, in, a, in words that seem to surpass just what could have happened in, in Jerusalem in the year 70. He says that there will be such a tribulation that has not been from the beginning of the world until now and never will be. So unless we're prepared to say that what happened in the year 70 was the worst event that's ever happened in the history of the world, then it seems like Jesus is pointing to an additional fulfillment of this prophecy. And what we typically refer to, uh, what the word that we typically use to refer to this is we talk about the Antichrist. Okay, here it's called the abomination of desolation. If you go to 1 John 2, that's where we get the word Antichrist. And in 2 Thessalonians 2 is where we, uh, Paul describes it as the man of lawlessness. So this shows up in other places in the Bible. And there's hints that there will be another fulfillment of this prophecy. Another person who is of great evil, who claims to be God and demands to be worshipped as God. And when that person shows up, it's a sign that the end of the world is near. And that at that point there will be a great tribulation far beyond anything that we have ever experienced and ever will experience. So the third instruction, watch out for the abomination of desolation. I know I didn't say nearly enough about the Antichrist there for some of you, but that's all you're getting. Fourth, watch out for deceivers. Again in verse 23, Jesus uses that same word, be on your guard or watch out or see. I've told you all these things beforehand. In verse 21, he says... And then, so after the tribulation, then there will be people who, who are false Christs, false prophets, who will perform signs and wonders and try to lead people astray. Now in your outline, I've noted that this has a single fulfillment because this is something that is happening after the destruction of Jerusalem. He's saying in verse 21, and then, so after that, there's going to be, from that moment until Jesus returns, people coming and saying, I'm the Christ, or, and I've done this amazing sign, I've made this prophecy, and it's coming true, follow me. And this is happening. This happens all the time. People making false predictions, people giving signs, and people, credulous, gullible, naive people, following them and saying, well, they prophesied this thing, and it, it seems to come true. I mean, there's a reason why newspapers keep recycling those Nostradamus stories all the time. You, know, you, you see those, the, the, the supermarket newspapers, they've got those headlines about Nostradamus predicts, you know, fill in the blank, whatever. But that guy was amazing, apparently. Now, uh, or, or I was just talking with a guy this week who, uh, we were talking about this 2012 thing and uh, the, the Mayan prophecy, and he says, well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I was watching this show on the History Channel, and they did get a lot of stuff right. Okay, the History Channel, it's like the Wikipedia of cable, right? You, you, just because something's on the History Channel does not mean that it's historically reliable. Like, just don't trust it. They say a whole lot of crazy stuff. They're trying to entertain you. And the newspapers are trying to sell newspapers. And what they do is they take these fortune cookie prophecies that are so vague that you can make them mean anything, and they package them up so that the gullible people and naive people will believe them. And Jesus says, watch out for that. There will be people who come to lead you astray. But Jesus says, I have told you all things beforehand. This is one of the reasons he's given us the prophecy. 
He doesn't give fortune cookie vague prophecies. He gives specific prophecies. He says to the disciples, there will be an abomination of desolation. Let the reader understand. You know what I'm talking about. There's going to be somebody who's going to come in a temple and desecrate it. And after that, the temple's going to be destroyed. And that happened. Okay? That happened. Jesus prophesied that within a generation, the temple would be destroyed. And that happened. This is not a vague prophecy. This is a specific prediction that was fulfilled. Which means that you can trust him when he prophesies about the end of the world. This is not some Nostradamus or Mayan calendar that just happens to end in 2012. This is Jesus saying, specific events will happen. They did. So we can trust him about what comes in the future. Watch out for deceivers. Fifth, and finally, Jesus says, watch out for Christ's return. This is another single prophecy, single fulfillment prophecy. Uh, This was not fulfilled when the temple was destroyed in Jerusalem in the year 70. But this is one of the things where Jesus is saying, clearly, this is yet to come. This is an event that will happen in the future. Look forward to this. And in verses 24 through 27, he says, here's the fulfillment. Jesus is coming back. Verse 24, he says, in those days after the tribulation... So this is sometime after that um, destruction. The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the heavens and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Point being, you are not going to miss it. This is a cosmic, earth-shattering event. It will be public. It will be unmistakable. Jesus will come back and everyone will see it. And he will gather his elect from the four winds. And as we know from other passages, after Jesus returns, there will be judgment. This is another really important point of application. When Jesus comes back, it's over. I mean, Game over, in terms of you have this life, you have this period of time to decide, are you with Jesus or are you against him? When he comes back, there's judgment. You can't wait for him to come back and then say, oh, I guess I'll follow him now. When Jesus comes back, then he judges. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have, uh, if you have accepted by faith the righteousness of Christ on your behalf, and he has taken your sins, then you're good. You enter into eternal life. But if you're opposed to Christ in that moment when he returns, you will be condemned to eternal punishment. Jesus is coming back. After he tells his disciples he's coming back, then in the rest of the chapter, he gives three applications of his return. Three applications of his return. First, he tells them and us to see the signs. In verse 28, he gives a little parable. He says, just like when you see a fig tree blooming, and you know the next season to come is summer, so when you see these signs I've told you about, you should know that the return of Christ is the next thing to happen. Now, verse 30 has caused some folks trouble throughout the ages. Because it seems to say that Jesus is predicting that he will come back 
within that generation. It says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Well, this is not a problem if we remember a couple things. First, if we continue to remember that there can be multiple fulfillments to prophecy. And then secondly, if we remember, uh, if we pay attention to verse 29 and note that all these things that Jesus is talking about is the stuff that happens before he comes back. Okay, so, so pay attention to me. Look at your, at your Bibles. Verse 29, Jesus says, When you see these things, you know that the end is near. These things, he's referring to, are all the things leading up to the end. Right? They don't include the end. When you see these things, the end is near. We've got two separate categories. These things and the end. And then in verse 30 he says... Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things happen. See how that works? We got these things. That's everything from verses 4 to 23. All the stuff leading up to the return of Christ. Those things will happen. And then the end will come. And he says that's going to happen within a generation. Now, if we remember that there can be multiple fulfillments, we recognize that Jesus is speaking here of the first fulfillment of this prophecy. And it happened. He said all these things, the, uh, the, the turmoil, the wars, the persecutions, the, uh, the abomination of desolation, the destruction of the temple, he says all these things are going to happen within this generation. And they did. They happened within 40 years of his prophecy. Now this is just like Isaiah. Isaiah said, you're going to be saved from these two enemies by the time this child is 12 years old. And it happened. But then you had to wait 700 years for the next fulfillment. And so here we are. Jesus said, all these things are going to happen in a generation, and they did, 40 years later. But we're still waiting 2,000 years from, from that moment for Jesus to come back. See the signs. The second application. I wish more people would pay attention to this. Don't predict the day. Verse 32. Again, one of the clear, very clear verses in this passage. Concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Really shouldn't have to spend a lot of time on here. It's pretty clear. And yet we have people like Harold Camping and others who come along and they say, world's going to end on May 21st. No, world's going to end on October 21st. No, the world's going to end. Stop it. Stop predicting the day. And don't any of you listen to people who are predicting the day. And don't listen to people who say, well, I'm not predicting the day, just the month and the year. He didn't say anything about the month and the year. That's not the point. He's saying no one knows. Jesus doesn't know, so you don't know. That television preacher doesn't know. If Jesus doesn't know, nobody's got it figured out. Okay? Yeah, just clear enough. Pay attention to that verse. Don't predict the day. Instead, third application, live like each day is the day. This is here, here where Jesus really brings it home to us. This is the big point of the whole prophecy. The end is coming. You don't know when it is, so live today like it's the end. Live every day as if it is the last day. Be found doing today what you want to be found doing when Jesus comes back. He says in verse uh, 33, in following this little story, like a man going on a journey and he, he leaves his house and he leaves people in charge. He gives them jobs to do. He tells the watchman, stay awake. Watch, you know, do your job. And they don't know when the guy is coming back. 
So you want to be working hard all the time. You want to be watching all the time because you don't know when that person is coming back. Some of you know <coughs> that uh, my wife and girls are gone for a few days this weekend. They're not sick. So those of you who are worried, they're not sick. Uh, but they are gone. They've been gone since Thursday. They'll be back on Tuesday, taking a trip out to see family in Pennsylvania. And usually what I have done in the past when they have gone on trips is that I will just let the filth in my house accumulate until right before they get back. Uh, just a little confession there. Uh, but what I realized this time, uh, as I, I was thinking about this, is um, I don't have to do that. Maybe this is me growing up. Uh, so you can watch this. I don't have to do that. I can do the same sort of cleaning stuff that I do all the time, put the dishes away, pick up my stuff. And, and while I'm waiting for them to come back, I can actually live in a clean house, and then I'll be ready whenever they show up. Right? And it's a lot better that way. I, you all know this, I know, but I'm just I'm realizing this is better. This is better. Now, in, in the same way, in a, in a similar way, the point of these signs and things and talking about things that will happen when Je before Jesus comes back, the point is not to say, oh, I've got a deadline now so I can live my life uh, and let the filth pile up and as soon as I see the abomination of desolation, I'm just going to get cleaned up. Or as soon as I um, see uh, you know, these, these signs of the times and, and, I, and I get the sense that Jesus is coming back soon, well, then I'll get my life in order. Um, no, no, the point... The point is, stay awake now. Be found doing now what you want to be found doing when Jesus comes. Because unlike my deadline for when my family is getting back, I know, it's coming on Tuesday. We have no idea. And even if we don't see the end of the world in our lifetimes, we don't know when our lives are going to end. And so, I mean, this is relevant to all of us because one way or another, the world's going to end or we're going to end. And in that moment, we're going to face Jesus and we're going to give an account to him for how we spent our lives. So the most important question, first of all, is are you right with God? He's returning or you're going to him. One of those ways, you're going to face him. When you face him, are you going to stand before him and plead the righteousness of Jesus on your behalf and say, I put my faith in him. I'm clothed in his righteousness. That is why I am loved and accepted by you. And Jesus says, absolutely, I, you know, I, I love you. I have forgiven you. You're good. You, eternal life, that's yours. Or are you going to stand there and say, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I've got nothing. I wasn't ready. Can I go back? Can I have a do-over? No, there's no do-overs. Be found ready. In the same way, if you have already put your faith in Jesus, Jesus says in verse 37 something specifically to you. Okay? Most of this prophecy is given to the disciples, and we've got to extract from that. But in verse 7, he speaks to you. He says, but what I say to you, that's to the disciples, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus is speaking to you here directly. Stay awake. So yeah, you put your faith in Jesus, but are you still living as if you believe he will return? Are you still living the way you want to be found living when he comes back? Or is there some area of your life where you say, yeah, I know I ought to obey in this area, and I intend to. I fully intend to. I'll get to it eventually. There's no guarantee, no guarantee that you'll have it eventually. There's no, there's no guarantee. You, when Jesus says, change something in your life, you should obey, you say, yes, I'll do that now. Or if there's a secret sin in your life that you're harboring, if there's something that you're just holding on to and you're saying, I just am not ready to give that up yet, I'll clean it up when I get closer, you have no idea. You have no idea. Jesus says, stay awake. 
What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Jesus is coming back. He's coming back. That's great news if you've believed in him. He's coming back. So stay awake. That's the truth about the end of the world. Let's pray. Father, work in our hearts today to be more eager for your coming, uh, for the coming of Jesus. Work in our hearts to be more eager to obey immediately, uh, to live our lives before you every hour of every day, um, longing for your return and living our lives in such a way that we would be happy for you to find us doing what we're doing when you come back. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.